um, as we move through Daniel, I've mentioned before that we're moving through chronologically rather than um, from front to back of Daniel. So last week we were in Daniel 8, and prior to that we were in Daniel 7. This week we moved to Daniel 5, which um, if you look at Daniel 7, it starts out saying in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Daniel 8 says in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And then here in Daniel 5, we end up at the last night of the reign of King Belshazzar. So we are moving through Daniel in a chronological way. Um, I can remember, my kids always love for me to tell stories from my childhood and things. And, and I figure it's a good way for us to get to know each other. And, and um, I remember standing at the water fountain in fifth grade, minding my own business, apparently not realizing the stud that I was, um, when uh, Amanda Ellenberg and Emily Judkins come walking up. And uh, Amanda says, John Daniel, which is what I went by at that time, uh, Emily and I both like you, and you need to choose between the two of us. Which obviously is the great beginning of any relationship. And so I started going with Amanda, particularly because I was afraid of her. And I didn't want to tell her no. Which obviously is, like I said, the beginning of a wonderful relationship, not. But um, this morning, as we look at Daniel 5 for Harvest, we see the relationship with God. And I believe as we look at any passage of Scripture, we see the relationship with God that we are intended to have. Not being one of um, fear, not being one of, of um, being pressed into his service, but the idea is that as we walk with God in his grace, we should seek to live in a way that worships. As we walk with God in his grace, we should seek to live in a way that worships him. Now, this calls for some explanation of terms, I'm sure. What I mean by that of walking with God by his grace is that a person has received the person in Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ as their Savior. They, all their trust and faith are in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their position of righteousness before God that's required for them to have a relationship with Him. They're able to relate with God then based on a righteousness that is not their own, and they live in the total grace and acceptance of what they receive in that relationship. The person, this person, that person, all of us who have received Christ as our Savior should seek to live a life of worship of God. We approach worship as, the, as our right response to what God has revealed about himself. So our song of praise to him is our response to his truth and our experience with him. Our obedience in times of trials and temptations, our treatment of others, our pursuit, the pursuit of our time and effort, these should be right responses of worship to what we have come to know about him. Now this morning we're going to approach chapter 5 a little bit differently than we have 
then as we've walked through kind of the entire chapter and then come to the eternal principles that we draw out of it. Uh, this morning, we're going to be drawing out those eternal principles as we walk through chapter 5. But really, this big idea, Daniel 8 for Harvest, I want you to understand that this is a combination. As I'm preparing this, this is simply a combination of those eternal principles that we can draw out of, um, I'm sorry, it says Daniel 8, of chapter 5 for Harvest. Um, those eternal principles being the desecration of idolatry and and the beauty of of walking with God in worship would be the principle number two. And the third principle being the the um, the moral responsibility of man. As I as as I put these together, if you were to summarize those principles that we gained from this chapter, that's what we get to with Daniel five for harvest, is that as we walk with God in his grace, we should seek to live in a way that worships him. Let me give you a little historical background here to Daniel 5. A king named Nabonidus rules over the land of Babylon at this time. Now between Nebuchadnezzar, who we've heard a lot about, and Nabonidus, four different kings ruled over the Babylonian empire in just six years. Their short reigns and removals were due to mostly murder and mutiny. And they were a far cry from Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nabonidus shared the rule of the Babylonian Empire with his son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, his son, was in charge of the city of Babylon, and Nabonidus exercised his rule far south of this. Daniel chapter 5 gives an account of the events of the very last night of the reign of Babylon. It's been 20 years since the events of Daniel chapter 4 and the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar toward the end of his reign, if you recall. At this point, Belshazzar and his father, Nebuchadnezzar, they've been reigning for 17 years. And this would be 14 years since Daniel chapter 8 that we learned about last week of Daniel's vision of the, the Greek and the Persian Empire and, and uh, the Greek Empire taking over the Persian Empire. We can only assume that Daniel's visions of the future empowers him as he deals with the king of Babylon. So as we move through here, Daniel chapter 5, well, we start here moving through and we step into this feast of idolatry that's going on inside the banquet hall. In, or in Nabonidus's palace. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now this is a special night in Babylon for a few reasons. First of all, it's the time of the fall celebration of one of the major Babylonian gods. It, this meant a drunken party throughout the city would be in order. The second reason why this is a special night is because of the looming presence just outside the city. Only days earlier, the Persian army defeated the army of King Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father. Now the army of the metal Persians is attempting to lay siege of the city of Babylon. Here we find Belshazzar and his nobles going on with their traditional 
celebration of this false god. It may be that Belshazzar and his guests were confident in their ability to survive. They may have felt safe behind the 85-foot thick double wall of Babylon. They also had, we know that they had enough food provisions to last for 20 years stored within the city. But there must have been something special or concerning about this night. Belshazzar does something that no Babylonian ruler has done since Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, not actually related, but his predecessor, looted the temple of Jerusalem years before. Belshazzar, all these names, Belshazzar calls for the vessel of the temple of God to be brought to the banquet hall. And this brings us to our first of our eternal principles that we find here in Daniel 5. That's the desecration of idolatry. It reads, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. That the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now we see from this text that the command went out when Belshazzar was drunk. You may recall something about the beginning of our study of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, his army, destroys Jerusalem along with the temple, and he loots the temple treasury. And this is what brought Daniel and his friends, the the best of the best of, of Judah, to Babylon. It was thought here by the Babylonians that Nebuchadnezzar's God, by being able to do this, it was thought that his God was greater than the God of Jerusalem because he was able to loot this God's temple and bring these vessels out. For Belshazzar to bring these vessels out and to toast his gods is a show of faith that his idols are greater than Yahweh. I should also note that the activities of the king and his nobles would have involved any activities that were anything but holy. You see, their gods were were fertility gods. They would have been worshipped through sexual promiscuity. As with any idolatry, this was an act of taking something precious and offering it to an idol in order to obligate that god to serve oneself. Now these vessels that they brought in, these were a part of the special place that God had provided to have a love relationship with his people. They were part of his divine and specific process of communing with them. God's temple was intended to be a light to the world and atonement for those who worshipped it. For Belshazzar to bring these vessels into this environment would be like a wife taking a love letter from her husband and using it to clean off her shoes. We read on in verse 3 about what's going on here. It says, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Here we see that 
it's not just that the vessels were brought into this drunken party. They were used to honor the idols of Babylon and his king and his nobles who were seeking their favor. When, when, when thinking about the purpose of these vessels of God and his temple, this would be like a husband taking a love letter from his wife and using the words of that letter to woo another woman. That's how God would have been feeling about this moment. You know, the fact is, God cares about the use of this stuff. And our lives belong to Him. We talked before about how idolatry is still active today, even in the West, to draw people away from worshiping God. Idolatry is taking what is meant to honor God and offering it to something else in order to get what we think we need from that thing. Just as the people were using God's vessels of worship to praise their idols, we're tempted to serve ourselves in our relationships, with our, with our, with our love, with our time, with our bodies, offering to them what we think we need, but offering what is precious to God. The New Testament teaches what I'm saying here in 2 Timothy 2, 20-22. It says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, like maybe what you'd have in your china cabinet, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're intended to be vessels that are usable for God's service. God cares deeply about our idolatry of offering ourselves to other things in order to serve ourselves. If you've been attending here for a while, hopefully you're, this sounds familiar. Well, if not, I'd be happy to talk more with you about it. But, but we're going to move on here in our story to a cryptic message that comes in verses 5 through 9. It says, immediately, as this party is going on, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Archaeology has uncovered walls of Babylonian uh, banquet halls, and, and the walls still are covered with a white chalky gypsum. The handwriting on this plaster, and specifically in the light of the lampstand, was meant to be visible to all. The description of Belshazzar is one of utter fright, with his legs crumbling beneath him. The description of him calling loudly could be stated as, The king shrieked, Bring me the wise men! And of course he brings in the same sorry lot that his forefather Nebuchadnezzar had been depending on prior to his salvation experience. 
He goes on, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That being beneath him and his father, Nabonidus. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and the lords were perplexed. Now the honor that the king promised to the interpreter was making that person royalty. I don't know what color he changed to at this point, but I'm sure it wasn't pretty. But it's happened twice at this point. But in comes a wiser queen mother who has heard the dilemma of the king. And she has some age-old advice for the king about a forgotten wise man. We read about this in verses 10 through 17 here. It says the queen, or you could understand this as the queen mother or the wife of a previous king, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, this being the Babylonian understanding of, of Daniel's abilities. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, father in Aramaic also being a term for predecessor. So your predecessor, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now in Daniel, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now with all of the royalties and the nobles that are present in this scene, you'll notice Daniel is the only one that receives any sort of introduction in this. The respect paid to Daniel by the Queen Mother is unmistakable. Mistakable. It, it may be that Belshazzar knew of Daniel and simply refused to call him. He certainly didn't respect his God. But we know that whether he knew Daniel or not, the mention of his name would have spoken volumes. The queen calls him by his Hebrew name, as well as his Babylonian name. Belshazzar would have thought, I believe, immediately of his ill-chosen goblet. You can almost picture him looking down at his hand and saying, the Hebrew guy, that's who I should call. So it goes on in verse 13 here. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard that you of you that you the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you we can assume that the king is still partly drunk here but there's no excuse for the disrespect and the arrogance that is echoing in his reading of daniel we, we won't go back and look at how ne his his predecessor nebuchadnezzar would greet daniel in these sort of situations but 
Belshazzar's greeting of Daniel is nothing like that. Here stands Daniel, one of the top administrators of Babylon for at least the last 65 years. We read at the end of chapter 8 that he was still an administrator under Belshazzar uh, during the reign of, uh, of Belshazzar, as it talks about at the end of chapter 8. Even still, Belshazzar refers to him as the captive from Judah. In Tarzan language, this is like saying, you slave, me king. We see his disrespect also in his description of the reports about Daniel. By saying, well, I have heard, is like to say, well, some have, some say, or some believe that you have, you know, something special about you. So he goes on in his address of Daniel. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. King Belshazzar is approaching Daniel as an exile captive who worships a weak, conquered God. He dangles before him the offer of royalty to be the third ruler of Babylon. I love Daniel's response. I mean, this right here is worth the price of admission. It says, it says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I don't think this made the king feel any better. So we come here to the second principle that we find in this chapter, and that is the beauty of sacrificial worship. Rather than being impressed with the king's offer, Daniel is there to serve the Lord and the Lord alone. Daniel's trust Daniel trusts God's provision, so he's free to bring his ministry without expectation of reward. What a contrast to how Belshazzar is ready to up the ante, do whatever he needs to, to get his gods to act. Daniel walks in in complete, total relationship with God, and everything that is offered rolls off of him like water off a duck's back. The life worship that God deserves is giving it all away because we've been given everything in Christ. Jesus spoke about only loving those who love you back when he taught on loving our enemies. In Matthew 5.46 he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He goes on and in the next chapter to say, beware of practicing your righteousness before others, before other people, in order to be seen by them. And that's the, that's the important thing, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. God doesn't divide up his worship with, with our idolatry. You know, in other words, well, you know, as, and and certainly any of us, and, and I'm glad for his graciousness that he walks with me in this, but, but 
it's as if to say when I am praising him but but thinking of maybe what I look like to someone else well it, it might maybe get on their good side with the way that I'm worshiping the Lord or something like that you know he's saying okay well good you know there's you there's your God you're doing this for them and, and enjoy your reward. Maybe they'll like you more. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I want the reward of closeness with him. I want that fellowship with him. I want to see more of him. Hebrews 6.10 puts it this way. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have Shown for his name in serving the saints. That's a positive looking at it. That God sees the love that we show in his name. Even if no one else does. It's worship of him. So the reward offered to Daniel makes no impact on him. And this is because he's empowered by the fact that his relationship with God is his greatest treasure. We'll see this in chapter 6 when he refuses to stop praying, even under the threat of being thrown in the lion's den. So Daniel begins to preach a message of doom. In verses 13 through 28, it says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he, would, whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. At first reading, and the younger people aren't going to understand this, but it's, at first reading, it sounds like Daniel's preparing for like a Benson quail debate zinger, you know, I knew King Nebuchadnezzar, and you're no King Nebuchadnezzar. But it, that's not what Daniel is doing here. He's giving Yahweh the Lord credit for establishing Nebuchadnezzar in the greatness that God gave to him. Nebuchadnezzar exercised the earthly sovereignty that he did because Yahweh had sovereignly given it to him is what Daniel is saying. Daniel is also saying that all of Babylon's greatness was due to the fact that God gave it to Nebuchadnezzar because all of Babylon's greatness rose with King Nebuchadnezzar who God raised up and it just went downhill from there. So Daniel goes on, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. Daniel goes on to describe how Nebuchadnezzar lost his sanity for seven years, and at the end of that time, recognized that God is king, and he sets up kings on earth, and he takes down kings on earth. And at that time, recognizing that, his reason returned to him. And then Daniel brings it to a head here. He said, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all. So here is the reason for Daniel's review 
of King Nebuchadnezzar's experience. He's not telling King Belshazzar anything new. Belshazzar knew the whole experience of Nebuchadnezzar. All of his idolatry was in the knowledge of the grace of the testimony of his predecessor. Next, Daniel contrasts Belshazzar's response with the saving faith of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, and he, and, he, and he uses the word in verse in the verse prior to this and in verse 23 here, he uses the word you or your uh, 14 times. He says, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have Praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He has brought the case against Belshazzar to its climax here, maybe even pointing his finger in his face. Your predecessor, who was much greater than you, was humbled and received God's grace. You, on the other hand, with the metal Persians at your gates, have only dug deeper into your idolatry, have only upped the ante. This brings us to our third eternal principle, and that's the moral responsibility of man. The fact is that God's truth carries the moral responsibility to be responded to in worship. Romans 1 reminds us that creation tells enough about God to make anyone responsible to worship Him. In Matthew 11, Jesus warns the city of Capernaum that it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for them, than it will be for them. And this was because the city of Capernaum witnessed the miracles of the Messiah and yet didn't believe. The gospel carried the moral responsibility to be yielded to in faith. You know, as a youth pastor, it always concerned me if I heard parents um, blow off their teenagers' rebellion. Those parents who came to Christ later in life, so often I would hear them tell, I would say, I was rebellious, and I turned out okay. And there's plenty of other aspects involved, such as we now live in an anti-Christian culture as opposed to a post-Christian or a, or a Christian culture. But one thing that I would try to get across to them was that they didn't have the gospel as a teenager. But their child was sinning against the presence of the gospel. And there's a difference. And that's what Daniel was getting across to Nebuchadnezzar. The presence of truth demands a response. Here again in Daniel chapter 5, we get to look at the connection between God's sovereign rule over the actions of man, yet Belshazzar is held completely morally responsible and chided for his behavior. Even though Daniel knows that the Babylonian Empire will sovereignly be replaced by the Persians, he holds Belshazzar responsible for his choices. And that's the way it works. Where the sovereignty of God and the choice of man meet, 
we cannot understand. Anybody that's that got that all figured out is selling something. But with that said, Daniel gets to the business of interpreting for Belshazzar. Verse 24 picks up this way. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. Daniel describing why this hand came. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. They're words of judgment and doom for Babylon. Belshazzar's time is up. His life has been evaluated. The deeds of him, his deeds as a monarch, have been weighed without, in cultures without a consistent currency. Payments would have been weights of something significant like gold or silver or maybe a commodity. So the amount, when it came time to pay, would be set on the scale. And if it wasn't the expected weight, the payment would be rejected. Belshazzar was being told that his rule did not pass the test of God's scale. And so the kingdom of Babylon was going to be handed over to the kingdom of the Persians, waiting outside its gates. This brings us to the part of this story of reward and judgment in verses 29-31. It says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king, another way of saying Babylonian, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So even though Daniel had invited the king to keep his reward, the king still lavished it on him. We don't know if the king did this begrudgingly, well, I guess I'm supposed to do this for you, or, or if he was grateful for Daniel's work. I wonder if this evidence that the king Belshazzar, if this was evidence that he didn't really believe what Daniel had said. Otherwise, he was definitely giving Daniel a worthless reward. But we'll actually see later that the Persians keep Daniel in this important rule in the extension of their empire in Babylon. Later, it's jealousy over Daniel's exalted position that will put him in the danger and being thrown into the den of lions. We'll come to this in a few weeks when we close out our time in Daniel, in chapter 6. So I want to make a note, just a clarification here for you history buffs, okay? Um, the t- uh, at this time, Cyrus the king is ruling Persia, um, ruling over the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, there's a king named, uh, well, there's no king in history named Darius the Mede as what is described here. But there's at least five places in Persian writing where the term Darius is used to describe the Persian king. Okay, so I lean toward the common idea that the term Darius is used as a title, like Caesar was in Rome. So if anybody ever says, well, it says Darius, and there is no sign of Darius anywhere, it's like basically a title of Cyrus. 
So anyway, with that said, uh, Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon, isn't that a great name, Xenophon? These Greek historians tell us what was actually going on likely during this very banquet celebration. Um, we've seen this map of Babylon before. The Persian general, I'm not sure if it would be uh, to the north here or to the south. I would, I would think to the south because the, the palaces are here in the north. But the Persian general, Ugbaru, was determined to break into the city of Babylon. And it wasn't just because he was bitter over being named Ugbaru. But all the while, probably for days leading up to this, but, but climaxed at this point, he's been digging a trench along the wall, possibly connecting um, uh, the moat here on both sides to the Euphrates River, which we've talked before about the Euphrates River runs through the center of Babylon. While this banquet is going on, Ugbaru's men connect their trench to the Euphrates River itself, draining, rerouting the very Euphrates River and causing the riverbed that runs right through Babylon to drop, at least to an amount of water that would allow the Persian army to walk right in. Recall the inhabitants of the city are involved in their drunken party, honoring one of their gods. It's, this was a nocturnal festival, Herodotus talks about, meaning that it would have been a, an all-night party. Possibly before Daniel has even started delivering his message of doom, Ugbar's room men have connected the trench lowering the depth of the river, and the 85-foot double wall is simply bypassed as the Persians are moving through the streets of Babylon. This is why we're told that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. The Persians would have walked right into the banquet hall. They would have interrupted the all-night party and delivered the very judgment written on the wall. Daniel may have just walked out of the place, back to his chamber. What a dreadful surprise. There was no surprise to God. Now bear with me as we bring this passage to a close here. And look back at the prediction of this, and then look forward to what Cyrus will do. Over 200 years earlier, Isaiah would say this about the king of Persia, calling him by name. 200 years earlier. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. How amazing it is to be able to read, and we'll see more here, read the predictions in Isaiah, to sit in the banquet hall in Daniel, and to read of the descriptions of it going on, and then to be look, able to look back 
on it through secular historians and see what actually took place. And this was all according to God's greater plan for his chosen people. 